Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Wrongful Convictions and Cold Cases. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. We've got a very, very special guest on. A friend of mine, I've known him for several years. Some of you may know his story. Probably a lot of you don't. His name is Jeff Deskovic. Um, it's an incredible story. I don't even want to do any spoiler alerts. I want to just kind of tell the story chronologically and walk through it. And then when we kind of get through this story, we'll circle back and I got a lot of questions. Jeff, good afternoon. Good to see you. Uh, good afternoon, Andy. Great to see you again. Let's set the stage. You are currently how old? 49. All right. Let's go back in time to when you were 16 years old. Is that correct? It is correct. You're 16 years old. You're living where? In Peekskill, New York, which is the suburbs. It's in Westchester County. All right. You're a 16-year-old kid. You're going to high school, I take it, at the time? Yes. All right. You're 16 years old. That's a, you know, that's an interesting time for people. You're kind of growing up. What happens when you are 16 years old that changes your life? Tell me, do the police come talk to you? Yes, they do. So a classmate of mine, uh, Angela Correa, uh, she was in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. Uh, she's an immigrant from Colombia, is in the country about a year and a half, leading fairly sheltered life, as you know I've learned. Uh, so she goes missing on um, no, November 14th, 1989, and her body is found naked from the waist down three days later. Uh, Peekskill is a small city in Westchester County, population of approximately 25,000 people. Murders are pretty rare. So it creates this atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. You know, parents were concerned with their own safety, safety of their children. You know, parents were driving their kids right to school, picking them up after school. I mean, it, you know, town hall meetings were held periodically. Various uh, safety tips and investigatory progress were, were held. All right, so this girl goes missing. How do the police like come to you? What, what, how do you get on the radar screen of the local police department? The police interviewed many students from the high school, and because I never really quite fit in at the high school, I was quiet, I was to myself, I was a little bit younger than the rest of the kids. So some of them told the police, hey, you might want to talk, they might want to talk to me. And so that's how I got on their radar I was also a sensitive teenager. This was my first brush with death, and I had an emotional reaction. And the police thought that considering I barely knew the victim, that my being emotional was some sort of outward sign that I was felt sorry for what I did. And a last thing, a reinforcing factor is they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the characteristics of the actual perpetrator, and I had the misfortune of matching those characteristics, so a type of reinforcing factor. Well, I got a million questions about what you just said. I mean, so they come to talk to you. I mean, did they come to you at school? Did the police come to your school or your house? They intercepted me on my way to school. I actually lived adjacent to the high school. There was only really two ways to get to the high school from where I lived, and one of them I would have had to really go out of my way to take, so it wasn't hard for them to figure out what route I, I took. So they intercepted me adjacent to the high school on my way there. And then do they take you to the police station or where do you go? They took me to the police station. And are your parents aware of any of this at the time? No. So they take you to the police station and what happens there? They start asking me questions about, about her murder. They show me color photographs and they're, you know, questioning me like, like a suspect very, uh, very aggressively. 
and eventually when I wanted to leave, then they they changed things up. I think somewhere in the course of them questioning me, they somehow learned that my thinking at the time was that, you know, when I grew up, I wanted to be a cop. So they somehow learned that. And when I wanted to get away from them, they, they switched up talking to me as a suspect to instead, you know, Jeff is this junior detective helper. They would say things like, well, the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. They did the good cop, bad cop routine. And my father was never involved in my life. So I began to look up to the cop who was pretending to be a friend. I began to look up to him as like a, a father figure. So do you have this first interaction? Do you get released? Do you get to go? I do. So I have inter continuous interaction with the police over the course uh, of six weeks. All right. And so what's what's happening during those six weeks? They're they're bringing you back to the station or what? Continuing to question you? Both. But, you know, sometimes they would call me directly or sometimes they'd use a they they use a friend to call me to say, hey, the police want to talk to you. So they would reach out to me and I and I would meet up with them. Uh, mostly at the at the police station. And again, they would question me as a suspect. And when they pushed too hard and I'd want to get away from them, then they would switch up and go back to this Jeff as a junior detective helper. So during this six week period, about how many times did you approximate you you talked to the police that they came and talked to you? Between 10 to 12, approximately. Oh, my goodness. And so and you're doing all this voluntarily. I am. You're a 16 year old kid who who is a 16-year-old kid going to high school. You talked earlier about getting emotional. When in this process did you get emotional? They held four sessions of the wake for the victim, and many many people in Peekskill went to all four, or some went to three, and I went. I attended to three. And got emotional at those services? I did, yes. And there was a, and there was a funeral service. Yeah, I mean, that was a wake, and then there was a funeral service. So, yes, I was emotional at all of them. But at the same time, I just want to quickly point out that so was everybody else. It wasn't that unusual in the context. Believe me, I'm an easy crier. If you told me right now your cat died, I probably would tear up. Um, you know, so that means nothing to me. What happens along the way? What changes because ultimately you get arrested, correct? Correct. Why do you get arrested? Because they told me at the end, they said, listen, we want we have some new information in the file. We want to share that with you. And you have, but you have to take and pass the polygraph first. And so the next day, rather than go to the high school, I, I went to the police station where I thought the test would happen. And instead, they drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County. They drove me 40 minutes away by car across county lines to town of Brewster in, in, in Putnam County so I could be polygraphed. The polygrapher, um, Daniel Stevens, he was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as law enforcement. He never read me my rights. Um, they, I, 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 didn't have, I didn't get anything to eat the time I was there. Uh, I didn't have a lawyer present. They gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but I didn't understand it because it had a lot of big words in it. But I figured, well, I'm there to help the police, so what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. From there, they, he put me in a small room. He gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he attached me to the polygraph machine. And then he launched into his third-degree tactic. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And as each hour passed by, my fear increased in proportion to the time. 
Uh, he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And then the cop, who was pretending to be my friend, he answered the room. He said, look, the, the other officers are going to harm you. You know, um, I've been holding them off. Uh, I can't do so any longer. you got to help yourself. Look, just tell them what they want to hear. You could go home afterwards. Uh, you're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, I wasn't thinking about the long term. I was just concerned my safety in the moment. The fact that I didn't know where I was and nowhere else did either, it loomed quite large in my mind. And there was the push-pull dynamic, you know, the possibility of harm, and then this false life preserver. So I made up a story based on the information they gave me in the course of the interrogation. By the time it was said and done, I collapsed in the fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Uh, the interrogation was not videotaped. There was no audio tape, no signed confession, just the cop's word for it. Obviously, I was arrested. I, I was charged with a murder and rape. It's the most unimaginable nightmare possible. It sounds like something that's like scripted from a TV show, like, like this is actually really your life. So you basically falsely confess to the murder of this classmate of yours. Is that right? That's right. And so, oh my gosh, case, you get arrested. It proceeds to a criminal trial. Yes. And this confession, is it introduced against you? Yes. And you're convicted. Yes, but I would like to just put a little bit more color to it. That's all correct. But I, a couple of things I want to mention. So before the trial, the DNA test result comes in from the FBI lab, which shows that seminal fluid found in the victim doesn't match me. Before your trial? Yes, before the trial. Yes. DNA. There's DNA found on the victim that doesn't match you? Yes. And that doesn't make your charge go away? No. My lawyer attempted to use it to dismiss the indictment. Uh, but what, but uh, the judge didn't grant the motion. The prosecutor's answer to that, he got the medical examiner to commit fraud. So six months after doing the autopsy, uh, hundreds of autopsies later, once the DNA doesn't match me, he then said, try to follow this now, Andy. This is, this is a doozy even for someone as seasoned as you. Uh, he says that he remembers that he forgot to document medical evidence, which he claimed showed that the victim had been promiscuous, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that, the, that she, must, she was sleeping around, that she must have slept with somebody else prior to my murdering and raping her, and that was how the DNA didn't match me, and yet I was still guilty. Holy shit. I mean... <laughs> and then he took it a step further, and he said he mentioned another youth by name that he claimed had this encounter with the victim, but he never called him as a witness. He never... Uh, got a DNA sample. He never set any kind of factual foundation. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. You know, let's pause here. At this point, there's nothing linking you to this crime, correct? Correct. There's no forensic evidence, right? Right. There's no witnesses placing you near this woman, right? Right. There's just simply this, this so-called air quote confession that was extracted from you in the way you just described. That's it? That's it. It's hard. It's hard for me to even ask these questions. You know, it's emotional. When I saw you at CrimeCon uh, a couple weeks ago, I mean, I was emotional when I gave you a hug after seeing you there uh, and hearing your story. So you have this trial now and you get convicted. You're, are you still, are you 16 years old at this point? No, I'm, no, I'm seven. I turned 17 shortly before the trial. All right. You're 17. 
you get convicted of the, I mean, what were you thinking at trial before, before the, you know, is this a jury trial or a bench trial? Jury trial. So before the jury comes back, you know, you're going to have a trial. Are you still thinking like, you know, I'm going to make this go away. I'm good. This is bogus. I got nothing to worry about. Like what's going through your head during the kind of trial process? I thought I was going to be uh, found not guilty because I was innocent. And, you know, that belief in the system was buttressed by, you know, some members of my extended family, you know, just telling me you don't have anything to worry about. And they all believed in the system. And at some point I adopted that belief. And the case goes through a whole trial. You're sitting there. The jury says we've got a verdict. And as a trial lawyer, this always gives me a pit in my stomach in a civil case where the stakes are nothing. You know, it's not a criminal case. I get a pit in my stomach from that. You hear the jury comes back with a verdict. You see the jury walk in. Now, what are you thinking? You still feeling good? For half a second. But see, I remember the saying from the county jail where, where the other inmates told me, when the jury comes back in, try to make eye contact with them. If they look at you and smile, that means that they found you not guilty. But if they look away or they're like stone cold, then that means they've convicted you. So I looked over at them and they wouldn't make eye contact with me because oh, I remembered that. But then I thought, well, well, wait a minute, though, that 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 can't be right. I guess, you know, the, the inmates really don't know what they're they're talking about, you know, and they read off the, the, the clerk starts reading off the charges. And suddenly I hear guilty, guilty, guilty. Oh, God. What's going through your mind at that point? How do you react to that? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I'm like, well, well, wait a minute. That 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 can't be right. Did I? Did, did I miss the word not? You know, and, and then yeah. once, it was, once it was clear that I did not miss the word not, I mean, I, I was like a, kind of like in a stunned disbelief. I mean, I didn't, I, my head was spinning and I, I didn't know what the hell was going to happen next. Do you literally then, when that happens, do you get taken out of court and handcuffed right then? And is that like, is it? Yes. You go right to jail right from there? Yes. And how long had you spent in jail awaiting your trial? About 30 to 35 days. And then I, my mother was dating a man that owned a, that was a businessman and, and he, he put up the $50,000 bail. So I got bailed out after about 35 days. <sighs> so you are convicted. You're 17. After a conviction, you actually then obviously go to prison. What kind of a facility do you go to? Do you go to any kind of a juvenile facility? No, I went to a men's maximum security prison. I mean, I had been charged as an adult, tried as an adult, and I was, you know, given the 15 to life sentence. Here you are, a sensitive, quiet kid trying to fit into high school, like you talked about, a little awkward, maybe, just trying to find your way. And now you're charged and, you first of all, they get you to confess to a murder that you didn't commit. You have a trial, you're convicted, and now you're going to a federal, well, not a federal, a a men's maximum security adult prison at 17? How in the world do you even cope with that? A, a number of things. I mean, I think belief in God was one thing. Another thing was I, I just told myself, look, I just have to hold on for like a year or two until the next appeal, which I'm sure I'm going to win because I'm innocent and I still believed in, in the system. That was one thing. Another thing is I used to go to the law library and learn the law, and that gave a sense of comfort. I used to read articles about other people who were exonerated, and I, and I used that as uh, inspiration. I did things to not waste my time, so I took advantage of some of the limited educational opportunities in, in prison, GED, and learned to type and got the associates in a year towards the bachelor's. I took other trades. You know, um, I used to read nonfiction books from 
1998 to 2006, I read three or four nonfiction books a week. So I did all of those things. Oh, my goodness. So describe a little bit for what prison life was like for a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, what you saw, you know, violence, treatment, like what, tell me a little bit about the prison experience. Describe what you went through and what you witnessed. So there were three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. There was violence that did not involve weapons. There was gang activity. So cumulatively, there was a general environment of, of uh, violence and adrenaline that permeated the air. There was a lot of verbal abuse from the guards towards the prisoners. Uh, the food was terrible. I mean, sometimes it was burned. Other times it wasn't, uh, it wasn't fully cooked. The medical care was, was terrible. It seemed like their answer to everything was to just give over-the-counter medication. I would describe it all as a nonstop obstacle course featuring the guard, civilians, and other prisoners as obstacles to the main goal, which was to overturn, overturn the conviction and regain your freedom. Well, I want to qualify this right now. I mean, you know, we're doing a podcast. It's, it, this is like a, a millisecond of your life, what we're doing right now. And we could probably spend hours just talking about prison conditions, violence, treatment, all that. So I, I don't want you to think we're minimizing any of this because I feel you. I feel what you're saying, and I hear you, and I, I, I understand what you're saying and how absolutely horrific that is. So you go into this adult maximum security prison at 17, okay? How uh, you there? You're there for a couple years. You're there. Did you think you'd be there for five years? No. So you're there for five years. You hit the five year mark. Now what are you thinking? I'm thinking, well, the, the federal habeas corpus petition is next. I just got to hold on for another couple of years. Do you hit the 10-year mark? I do. At that point, I, I have, uh, there's, um, I'm trying to go to the federal court of appeals now. So you hit the 10-year mark. You're still kind of trying to hang in there with some federal court stuff. Can you believe you've been in there 10 years? You're now 27 years old? No, I can't. I, I can't. But I want to add that for the two federal court proceedings, I had additional confidence that I didn't have before because that was the one time where I had a private lawyer. So different people had come into my mother's social circle and everybody contributed a manageable amount. So I had a private lawyer at that point. And I thought that that was going to make the difference, that they were going to pay attention to the issues just a little bit more carefully. So I was, I was kind of riding high on that. Did you have a public defender at your criminal trial? I did. God bless public defenders. It's a hard job, but but there's a great documentary called Gideon's Army. You might have seen it. These public defenders have like, you know, a thousand cases. I mean, they just they just do not have the time and resources to devote to each case like a private attorney does. Um, do you hit the 15 year mark? I do. But after the 11 year mark, my appeals are over. And so at that point, the only way back into court when your appeals are over is if there's either a retroactive change in the law, or if you find some new evidence that wasn't known before that probably would have led to a different outcome. So my legal work at that point, we'll put air quotes on that. I, I was writing letters to nonprofit organizations that free wrongfully convicted people. I was writing large law firms, small law firms. I was writing people that could help me indirectly. You know, my, my, I wrote letters for four years. And then as I hit the 15 year mark, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I look at parole as a potential means of regaining my freedom, except that uh, because I maintain my innocence uh, and, and rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, I got denied parole and they told me to appear 
back in front of them in two years. Now, at this point, I think I'm going to die in prison. At year 11, you're basically out of legal options. And you're thinking at that point, like, I'm screwed, right? I'm just going to be here unless I come up with some Hail Mary. Well, well, unless I come up with some Hail, unless I come up with some new evidence, I come up with that Hail Mary. Yeah, so which you had not in 11 years. So, I mean, I would think as every year goes by, your your hopes get a little smaller, your dreams get a little smaller, you know, Correct. your enthusiasm gets a little smaller. So you've now been, you got arrested at 16. You've now been in for 16. And... How does the Hail Mary get completed? Tell us about that and how that played out. One of the letters I wrote in care of a, to a book author in care of a publishing company was sent by the publishing company to an investigator rather than the author. The investigator connected me to the Innocence Project. She lobbied them to take the case. She got other respected legal entities to do so. Uh, then I got lucky that one of the intake workers represents my case several times after they initially said no. So getting then I got their legal representation. So that was step one. The Innocence Project in New York. And step step two is that the district the, the district attorney of Westchester, Janine Pirro, um, who was not the DA when I was convicted, but became the DA before the first appeal was decided. She had blocked all seven of my appeals. She she blocked me from getting DNA testing. She fought my appeals. Blocked you from getting DNA testing? Yes. The DNA data. They opposed that? They did. The DNA data bank had been created. And so I wanted the further testing and in an effort. My God. In an effort to try to identify, but she, she blocked that. So she left office. And the third key is we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim three and a half years uh, later after killing the victim in my case. He subsequently confessed to the crime. So my conviction was overturned with the consent of the DA. That was September 20th, 2006. I went back to court November 2nd, 2006. All charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds, and he was subsequently arrested and convicted of the crime. I got goosebumps. If you could see the hair on my arms right now, I want to tell you something again. Congratulations. Thank God you got the DNA. I, I just cannot believe um, your story. So you served 16 years, and then you got exonerated by DNA. They found the real killer, and you are 100% innocent. So I want to go back and tell a little more. I want, to, I want to continue your story, and I want to go back and ask a few questions about false confessions. So you get, you're, when you get exonerated, you are now how old? 32? So you're 32 years old. You've been in prison from 16 to 32. Now you get released. Uh, now what? What do, you, what do you do when you get out? How are you feeling and what's your plan? Yeah, I was released at 32 and I felt like I was 17 because that's the last year that I was uh, free. So, well, look, I really didn't have a plan. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I suffer from all the typical after effects. You know, there's the psychological, you know, PTSD, panic attack, anxiety, a feeling of having been frozen in time, feeling of processing things at a slower speed, fear on seeing law enforcement. There's a social stigma. You were in prison for 16 years, wrongfully, yes, but you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace? Technology had passed me by. GPS, cell phones, internet hadn't been created. It was awkward when I'd meet up with my extended family because I knew who they were intellectually from when I was younger, but I didn't have any I hadn't had any contact with them, and the few that I did have, it was extremely sporadic with many, many years in between visits. So that was that was awkward. 
I, I was always passed over for gainful employment, so I lacked stability of housing. At one point, I came within a couple of weeks of going to a, a homeless shelter, and and it was lonely. Uh, now, that was on the difficult side. On the positive side, I started speaking. I, I became a weekly columnist. Um, I started meeting with elected officials, and I was trading privacy for awareness, uh, you know, doing doing media and ultimately new media interviews. So the a, a dean at Mercy College uh, had lined up a scholarship for me to finish the bachelor's degree. So I got the I finished the bachelor's at Mercy College. I tried to get into law school, but didn't. So I instead went to grad school. I got a master's degree in criminal justice from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Um, I, after five years, I got I got some financial compensation, and I used that to start my nonprofit, uh, Jeffrey Deskwick Foundation for Justice, which you know we freed thirteen people at this point from 2011 to now and helped pass six laws. And at some point, I got tired of sitting in the front row of the courtroom. I, I went, so I went to law school, I went to go to law school and I got in this time and uh, became, a, I became an attorney and, you know, I had my first success back in December. That rolls off your tongue so, so quickly. I mean, you just dropped a, some huge bombshells there. You started a nonprofit and that's unbelievable. Did I get this right? You freed 13 people? You got that right. Yes. You are an angel that was sent down here to earth. You're doing God's work. It's unbelievable. You started a nonprofit. You freed 13 people. You passed six laws, you said? Yes. On mm -hmm. what kinds of topics? So we we passed the country's first uh, over independent oversight board for prosecutors. It's called the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct. Uh, we actually had that. We passed that several times. Uh, we Past discovery reform. So New York went from being one of the worst states in the country in terms of discovery to uh, one of one of the best. Uh, we passed an expungement bill in in, uh, in in Pennsylvania. There was a different bill we had a, a hand in passing called Less Is More, which in, involves it. People were being returned to prison sometimes for one or two years for technical parole violations, whereas now they can't be returned uh, for that only for a couple of things and for a limited amount of time. So I want to point out that the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act was passed in New York awaiting for Governor Hochul to sign it, and that would provide counsel for indigent defendants and would require courts to consider evidence of innocence in cases even where people have uh, pled guilty. And then you went to law school and you got your law degree. Yes. And you've been a lawyer, a practicing lawyer now for how long? Three years. And you, for three years, and you still have your not-for-profit, right? Of course. I only take cases from that. I, I only take cases from my nonprofit. I just represent innocent people, primarily on the exonerative end. And then when people are exonerated, then, you know, I help them get compensation. I often, you know, partner with law firms. So I feel like your case, uh, I know a lot of people know your case, but I feel like most people probably don't. I feel like you. Jeff Deskovic should be the spokesperson, the face of the false confession, wrongful conviction issue. I mean, it, should, it literally should be, be you talking and educating people because people tell me all the time, you know, I've got, I've had cases, you know, like my Star Rock murders case, Chester Weger. Oh, he confessed. People have a hard time understanding and wrapping their head around the concept of a false confession. And I think your case is probably the best one to teach and educate people because, you know, we know 100%, it's a DNA exoneration. We know that you are 100% innocent. And we also know that you falsely confessed, right? And so 
What do you say to people who would say, oh, I would never falsely confess, or how could somebody falsely confess? How do you, how do you explain it, and what's, the, what's your kind of quick response to trying to educate people about the concept? Yeah, is that, as I would say that false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 29% of the DNA-proven wrongful convictions, and that while adults are falsely confessed, particularly vulnerable populations are people with mental health issues and, and youth, which I was a youth. And I would also say, until you're actually in the interrogation room yourself, you, you really don't understand the type of pressure that you're put under, or just, you know, the Cycle, you know, the, the the psychological principles that are that are built into the the read technique, which is the primary interrogation method used in in the U.S. You know, shame on all those people that were involved in your conviction. I mean, it had to be so apparent that you're this 16 year old kid who had nothing to do with this crime. There's nothing linking you to the case. And why are they trying so hard? You know, if you're trying so hard, uh, do you really think you got anything of value? You know, there's no forensics. There's 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 no witnesses. There's nothing. It's just so scary. It just, it really scares the hell out of me to think that that can happen to somebody. And I just think your case, you should be, everywhere you walk down the street, everybody should recognize your face. I mean, I feel like you, your story needs to be told. Climb to the top of Mount Everest with a megaphone, scream it out loud. Everybody needs to know your story because it's so powerful and it's so horrifying, but you are so articulate and can explain it and describe it. And, and I mean, I can tell from the way you are now, you were at 16, I'm sure you were also smart and articulate and all those things then. Uh, and it still happened to you, you know? I wanna try to help. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on this podcast is I wanted to raise awareness of who you are, what you went through, the work you're doing now. Um, tell me a little bit about how people can find you, your foundation, if people have, if there's anybody listening who wants to reach out to you or they've got a case they want to refer to you, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. So first of all, you can go to the website, www.deskovic, that's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. There's a web form that you can email me through. Uh, I'm also on social media. I'm on uh, you know, fa Facebook and the foundations on Facebook and Instagram. And you know, I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, so I do get messages there. I do answer. Uh, I do answer people. Uh, in terms of people listening, I mean, you know, I, I would love to. I'd love to get the story out there more. You know, I have a book that's ninety-eight percent written. I need a literary agent. I'd love for the book to do really well. Have have a, have a movie and you know have it come out in other art forms. Whether you know they have a, a play, a musical, a one-man show. I think all those things are. Are, 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 are possible, but I just, I need the right person to step in and open that door. So maybe somebody listening here. 100% it is going to happen. I, there's no doubt in my mind about it. There's no doubt in my mind about it. I saw you. So for people that don't know crime con, there's actually something called crime con. Yes, indeed. Probably a lot of our listeners know, cause they're true crime fans. It's a true crime convention every year with various speakers and topics. Jeff was there. Jeff told his story on stage. And that's, that's when I, I literally, I cried. I, I, I got emotional because I also saw this short film. Tell me the name of the film. Tell me when it was made. Tell me where people can see it. And then tell me about the feature documentary that's coming out. So the film is called Conviction. It was produced and directed by Gia Wirtz. It's available on, on Amazon Prime. It was made approximately two or three years ago. It's gotten into 17 um, film festivals. It's won four awards. And it's a short, so meaning it's 21 minutes, and it's about 
my life post-exoneration and secondarily uh, about some of my advocacy work. The feature film is, they're finished shooting it already. It's in uh, post-production, just finishing up a few things there. But uh, it's that's going to be an hour and a half. And so uh, that's going to be get more into like the legalistic side of things. It's going to be about my case and I'll have other people in, involved and other people's voices will will be in it. Uh, I have seen it. It's incredible. I, I love the short. I, I dare say the full length uh, documentary, which is an hour and a half, is three or four times better than that. So I'm cautiously optimistic that it will draw people in. And we do get into uh, false confessions there as well. Well, I saw the short in, at CrimeCon in Orlando two weeks ago, and the short blew me away. All right. The short, if you're saying the feature one is three or four times better, I can't even imagine because I watched the short and just you talking, those scenes of you in the car, driving, telling your story, walking through the arrest, walking through the interrogation, walking through the conviction, prison life, it just hit me like, like a gut punch so hard. It was so emotional. I think it's great that you did that film, and I think it's great you got the feature because it's a more powerful way to tell your story than somebody reading an article you read an article about your case. All right, it's it doesn't hit you. You got to see it. You got to hear it. You got to feel it. And you being on the screen and being as smart and articulate, I mean the way you were answering questions, I got to tell you, you are one of the most impressive persons I've ever met. I seriously mean that. Really. Uh you are amazing remarkable person. I'm so proud of everything you've accomplished. I can't wait to see this feature doc and I can't wait to just follow your journey and the work you're doing, having already freed 13 people. In a weird way, I feel like, you know, uh, you'd never want to go through what you went again, but you have turned it into this incredible life now, an incredible experience. And the good you are doing, holy cow, I just can't say enough about you, Jeff Deskovic. It just, it's just amazing. And I really appreciate you coming on this podcast to tell your story. And I look forward to staying in touch and continuing following your journey. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I, I'll quickly add as we as we get ready to wrap this up that, you know, I do look at what I went through, you know, as, um, you know, if I didn't go through that, I wouldn't be doing the work that, that I that, that I do now. I do believe this is this is why I'm, I'm in the world. And, you know, I'm not an angry or bitter person. I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. And I can't do that if I'm you know, anger or bitter, you know, I feel like I've lost so much as is, you know, why would I want to in effect lose the rest of my life and be maybe less nobly if I was angry or bitter, it's not like I'd be impacting any of the people involved. So I guess my best revenge is living my best life. And, you know, the vehicle that allows me to actualize that as I take the energy I feel and I channel it into the, the advocacy work I do, it, you know, it's cathartic, it's healing. You know, it it, uh, it it makes a difference. It enables me to allow my suffering to count for something. So I do it, um, you know, from working on legislation in New York pertaining to false confessions. So one of the bills is uh, the police are currently mandated to record custodial interrogations, but there's unfortunately exceptions for uh, homicides, sex offenses, and drug cases. We want to get rid of those. There's the Youth Interrogation Act, which would recognize, which would give 16 and 17 year olds, a non-waivable right to counsel. So you would have to have a lawyer before a kid that age or younger. Uh, the lawyer would explain to the, the youth what their rights mean so that they really could 
make a decision, informed decision of whether they want to waive their rights or not. I mean, I, I didn't understand my rights, Andy, you know, and every time they said anything you said can and will be used against you in a court of law. You're 16 years old. You're a high school kid. What do you know? Exactly. My mind would go to my God, my mind would go to what I saw on TV and different civil court contexts. And I'd be thinking about court. What are you talking about? We're not going to court. Uh, there's, a, there's a police deception bill, which would ban the police from using deception and in interrogation, recognizing that that's inherently coercive. Uh, Pennsylvania, a border state to New York, um, you know, there, there's been a couple of bills introduced. We're cautiously optimistic that they're going to pass the session. Have been at that with my colleagues from Pennsylvania. It could happen to you from the last three years. But PA is one of 12 states that does not compensate uh, people, uh, exonerees. So we're working on that and, you know, raising awareness in California about the problem of prosecutorial misconduct. So from policy to public education to working on freeing people, you know, and then even just trying to expand out my foundation. I mean, we have 13 active cases, but, you know, there's another five that are approved but waiting and we need to raise, fun, you know, more funds so that we can have additional lawyers, investigators, other essential personnel to help us move those. We're already stretched as is with 13. But listen, you know, we do have a crowdfunding page on the website called Patreon, which is for people willing to be recurring donors. And, you know, what if 25,000 people were willing to sacrifice 3 to $5 a month or some other amount they could afford, but on a recurring basis? That would give us close to a million dollars. Imagine what kind of good that we can that we, that we could do. So maybe some of the people are social influencers or have otherwise have a following of one kind or another, even word of mouth. I mean, it, it all counts. If we all do a little bit, we could get a lot done. Well, you are doing God's work. Amen, brother. I'm so impressed and proud of you. Let's stay in touch. Love to have you on again, talking about more of these issues. And I look forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you. Same here. Thank you for having me, Andy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrongful Convictions and Cold Cases. Oh my gosh, I'm still, I'm still, my head is still spinning from talking to Jeff Deskovic. It just, it's just such a powerful emotional story. Stay tuned for more episodes of compelling true crime cases. Also stay tuned. Starve Rock Murders, I haven't forgot about it. All you people that have been following, as soon as I have an update, you'll be the first to know. I'm hoping to have some big updates by the end of the year and you'll be the first to know. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis and Studio Friends. Design, content, and production by Bell and Ivy. I'm your host, Andy Hale. We'll see you next time.